the Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Humanitarian Hub podcast recorded here at SOAS Radio. We're releasing this podcast alongside the Humanitarian Hub blog to highlight the debates, research and current issues surrounding humanitarian work globally. Hopefully this podcast will give you insights into the kind of topics that will be covered in SOAS's latest MSc, Humanitarian Action, which is a two-year online master's beginning in October 2019. Now, if you want to hear any more about that course and the kind of things that will be covered and how to apply, I'll be leaving a link to that in the podcast footnotes. I'll also be leaving a link to the Humanitarian Hub blog, uh, which has a range of articles, podcasts and videos exploring lots of current debates surrounding humanitarianism and humanitarian work globally. So last week on the podcast in episode one, I spoke with Dr. Suda Pereira, who is a uh, senior lecturer here at SOAS. And we were discussing her work and her research in the Democratic Republic of Congo and talking about the types of ways both academics and humanitarian workers are able to gather information in complex environments and the relative merits of new technologies versus ethnographic, more hands-on research uh, that she certainly advocates for. So if you're interested at all in the wider context of the DRC, I would definitely recommend uh, having a listen to episode one and hearing what uh, Dr. Pereira has to say about that. But this week for episode two, I spoke to Amy Jose, who has just completed her third year dissertation uh, at SOAS. She was doing a BA in development studies. And she talks about her dissertation, which focuses on the hashtag MeToo movement in NGOs, which she's seen has seeped through the its initial impetus in the mass media and in particular Hollywood to highlight the role of NGOs and especially Oxfam in their complicity in the sexual exploitation of, of women in overseas humanitarian response missions. And in our interview, Amy and I discuss the kind of pertinent themes that come up in her dissertation and the fact that the development sector and the humanitarian sector has to continue to grapple with these things such as preconceived benevolence uh, of those working there and the inherent power dynamics at play in NGOs alongside questions of agency and women's empowerment. And Amy raises a lot of very interesting questions about the role of humanitarianism and the potential shifting nature of of humanitarian work, primarily through a gendered lens. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, Amy. Hi there. So I think, first of all, it would just be great if we could get maybe a bit of an overview about your dissertation, uh, maybe kind of the things you found out and, and what the overall findings and argument was. So um, a brief uh, overview of my dissertation, if it's ever possible to be brief on on your own dissertation, is that uh, sexual exploitation and abuse does happen by humanitarian workers towards local populations and that is one of the main conclusions of the of as, as the title states it's but it's also one of the main conclusions and findings of of my research it also originally we kind of look at the scope of the problem so we look at who the perpetrators are who the survivors or victims are we look at cases of underreporting um, and different types of uh, evidence uh, different qualitative and antidotal evidence 
evidence. The dissertation then goes on to discuss two case studies, uh, which is West Africa, the aid for sex scandal, and also much more recently Oxfam uh, in Haiti, uh, which is obviously just what happened in 2015, but it was reported on in uh, 2018 in the in the Western media. So the mechanisms that uh, that I discovered through my research were that in- enables sexual abuse to continue as gender, looking at both hypermasculinity and the concept of the third world woman, and then going on to address regulatory frameworks, uh, reporting accountability, uh, immunity and Tabuna's regulatory trilemma. And what were the main tools that you used for your research obviously you've mentioned use of anecdotal evidence and reports but obviously I imagine they're quite scarce until more recently so kind of where were you finding these pieces of anecdotal evidence did you find people were willing to speak about it or was it actually something that was very difficult to find so actually um i unfortunately wasn't able to get any primary research um there were kind of two reasons behind that one because I don't necessarily feel that I'm competent enough to interview people about their traumatic experiences. Two, they're the people I most likely would be speaking to would not be in this country. And uh, I'll add on a third one. There's another very good dissertation done by uh, a woman called Danielle Spencer, and you can find her dissertation on Changing Aid, changingaid.org, I think the website is. It's called um, Cowboys and Conquering Kings, and through that she has a lot of primary research with uh, aid workers and their experiences of sexual exploitation and abuse in the aid industry and that was done just the year before so I was able to use a lot of her research there was also another study done by um, the Australian equivalent of DFID and they looked into um, again that was another that was a larger piece of, of primary research and they looked at um, organisations that were work under them and uh, they were able to, to gather data from that as well and I also used there's quite a lot of um, news articles good quality news articles from Irin also now known as the New Humanitarian and uh, other articles like the original one that revealed caused the problems in the Times, the Guardian's written extensively on it so there's quite a few different pieces also the UK held their f- think it's the first uh, safeguarding summit within the humanitarian industry last year, it was in the October of 2018 which is a few months after the story broke and uh, there were lots of kind of quotes from different people from different organisations within, within there which was uh, good to use. So obviously your findings were would you say, less than uh, shining when it comes to (laughs) how the kind of inner workings of the humanitarian sector and what is actually going on and has been going on historically. But do do you feel now that there is an impetus for actual and radical change within the industry or do you think actually it's the story's broke and now things might just go back to the status quo? I, I, I think that it should be an impetus, but looking looking back uh, across the humanitarian industry and looking at the power dynamics within it will there be the radical change that needs to happen say in the next few years probably not um i'm not you know personally i'm not an experienced practitioner so i'm not up to date on all of the current trends i think what what really needs to happen is is a push from donors and a push from the government, you know, that funding is included to, to monitor monitor more. Um, and also to my dissertation, I talk a bit about how um, how you should have in-country trials, which is something uh, that's been recommended by, by another academic. And um, the idea that if there is a case of abuse or sexual exploitation within a country, that it should be tried within that host country where it takes place. And that's partly so the host community can 
see that something is being done. They can see that there is a consequence for a purpose, for a perpetrator um, that, that inflicts damages on their community and it also shows other workers what happens if you do that realistically that's that's pretty expensive uh, to run some kind of international court within a, a within an effective community but you know can we afford not to do it just on that point finally has it been a case in the past where actually the majority of if anyone has been reprimanded for this kind of behaviour, it, it has happened back in, in their home country, as it were, without much of a understanding of what's been happening on the ground, or has it just not been happening at all? So, yeah, so the reason why I chose to focus upon humanitarian workers as opposed to peacekeepers, there's been, you know, many media stories uh, since the 90s about peacekeepers um, inflicting abuses. It's not something new. And actually, peacekeepers really are part of the military. And then if you look back at wars throughout the ages, there's always been an element of, of of gender violence within conflict so it's not like we're not you know reinventing the wheel um it's always something that's happens now with uh, i do outline in my in my research there's a difference between how it's dealt with under un peacekeepers they have a specific um framework to to follow that framework is really flawed and not great but they have one which is a lot better than the humanitarian industry do um so um if, if you're a peacekeeper peacekeeper and you do something really the worst that can happen is that you'll be sent home and that you won't have a job with the UN anymore if your country decides that they want to prosecute you for it they can they probably won't depending where you're from but there's there's lots of difficulties to be fair in having a fair trial as in uh, there's lots of logistical issues how do you get witnesses from a to b so if you've got a canadian uh, troop that has uh, committed an uh, uh, an act of violence in another country you're going to fly your witnesses to canada to to have a fair you know international standard trial and the victim or survivor themselves what about them so it's, it's not actually as straightforward as it, as it seems if you're doing it externally anyway so it's quite a complicated thing I mean rape and abuse is very complicated in a country that's stable with what arguably is a reasonable judicial system like the UK not to say that we've got the best judicial system but comparatively around the world we're not doing too badly it's very hard to try rape and sexual abuse in the UK and we're stable so to take a case from an unstable country and try and move it to the home country of that person and the time and expense and resources involved in doing that is is just unlikely but sorry going back to your question so then when this this is under the UN so going back to humanitarian workers you know why not just sweep it under the carpet it's a lot cheaper and you know you don't want to look bad in front of your funders it's it's pretty embarrassing i mean you know you've got the catholic church recently that's been you know all of their cases of abuse have come up i think uh, the, the latest one was in the, the documentary on netflix is the spanish in in spain there's been one on 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 islands but you know that's all coming out the woodwork and you know we know it happens in 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 schools and and the aid industry is just the latest in that and there isn't really it's all self-governing so you're, you're far more likely from what i gather you're far more likely to be disciplined for misusing funds and resources than you are at all for any uh, sexual act it comes down in a lot of ways i suppose to accountability on the individual and the organization and you were saying there is a potential going forward is for, for donor agencies to have you know more accountability and to have to think more about trying people and listening to complaints. Uh, but do you think maybe uh, you know another aspect alongside that might be to enforce better training and 
education for those going out to work in in these areas and raise these issues so people know how to spot them uh, and report them and, and kind of give proper channels. I think training and education are, are great and from what I gather from, from Spencer's work uh, is inadequate and not taken seriously within the humanitarian sector. This isn't to speak for all uh, all agencies, obviously, but that the time given, say, on a week's pre-departure training course given to addressing those issues is, is really super minimal and isn't taken seriously. H- however, education is good, but ultimately people are reporting it on the other end and and nothing's happening. Uh, so in, until I think people that are reporting it and, and whistleblowers being supported and, and given the respect that, that they deserve, then you can train people all you want. But if they go to the field and they report something and nothing happens then and, and, and worse actually usually it's to the detriment of the person reporting it's to their career that they will be seen as a troublemaker that you don't want in your organization then and, until we can overcome those barriers then you know education's only going to go so far and i suppose just finally you've you've handed in that big bit of paper the dissertation's done <laughs> uh you've finished your three years at SAS. what's next that's a great question. <laughs> um, so at the moment, I'm looking for um, international placements uh, with a number of different organisations. So I'm really looking to get some inadverted commas field work under my belt um, for the next sort of foreseeable future up to the next five years, I think. And then I can think about the, the next move from there. Brilliant. Amy, thank you so much. The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond.